Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be back in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise be to God. Thank you guys for uh, coming here to Gospel Saving Church in my home in McKinney, Texas. And thank you all for coming from all over the world on SoundCloud. God bless you and welcome. Uh, For those of us or those of you out there that are celebrating today, happy Father's Day, by the way, here in America. It's Father's Day. So uh, happy Father's Day. But I hope you to take today and honor the greatest father of ever, and that would, of course, be the great God Almighty, our great Father, which is in heaven. Um, anyway, <clears throat> thanks be to God. I'm glad to be back. In case you guys didn't notice, I uh, didn't post a sermon last week. And, of course, we didn't have church here in my home last week. That's because I was on vacation with my family. We went to visit some relatives up north with, you know, all together. And praise God, I'm glad to be back. And praise God, I'm glad to be refreshed. Had some good night's sleep since we've been back. Had a good time. But now... I want to get back to business, and I want to teach God's Word again. Let's get back to normal. So if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, please, and then uh, we'll ask God to bless our service and help me teach, because certainly uh, He knows I definitely need it, as we need His help to do everything we do for Him. So if you join me, please. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us back here, Lord God. Thank you so much, Lord God, for showing us the straight and narrow path, Lord. Lord, you you not only show us the path to heaven, Lord, as Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, Lord, so we know the path to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ, and Lord, we know his word, which tells us how to come through him to get to heaven, Lord, but we, Lord, also thank you for showing us the straight paths here on earth, Lord, whenever we inquire of you, whenever we ask something of you, or ask your guidance, or where should we go, or what should we do, or is this the right way, or is this not the right way, Lord, you always answer very clearly, and you always give us clear guidance, Lord, because you are a loving, kind, awesome dad. And Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for being an awesome daddy. And I just want to honor you today. Happy Father's Day to you, great God in heaven. And we pray that our service to you today and our attitudes of our hearts today, Lord, would all be honoring to you today, Lord, as we live for you and as we as we sing songs to you, Lord, as we as we spend time with you today, Lord, as we serve you today, Lord, we pray that all that we do for you today would bring a great smile to your face, Lord, because there's only one thing that we can give you, Lord, that you don't already have, and that's ourselves, that's our hearts, that's our, our dedication and our devotion unto you. And I pray that we would today, Lord, and even anybody listening to this message that's not doing that, Lord, I pray that they'd start doing that, Lord, because you are worthy, Lord. Anyway, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for everything you do for us and you continue to do for us and that you have done for us in the past. And we, we praise you and we ask you to bless this service, Lord, and help us to understand your word and help us to understand clearly what you're trying to say to us today. And we just ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we're going to actually be, we're, we're still right where we were a couple weeks ago. We're in First John, but today we're starting our First jar, chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it, but I'm just going to give us a recap. I'm not going to do an overview or a thoughts from last week like normal because there are no thoughts from last week except for I already gave them to you. I was on vacation. So I'm just going to recap the last two messages that I did really quick just to bring us up to speed and so we know what's going on for today because John actually carries over into chapter 2 where he kind of left off in chapter 1. So, so far in John's first epistle... He gives us some really powerful, remember that verses 1 through 4, he gives us some really powerful testimony of the reality of Jesus Christ. To both, as he said, 
help people have faith in Jesus Christ and the salvation, and help Christians who have never seen Jesus Christ like me and probably all of you who have never physically seen Jesus Christ like he did, to have our joy fulfilled. For after all, John was a great eyewitness to one of the most powerful testimonies there can be, powerful evidences and proofs that Jesus Christ was really real. John saw him, physically touched him, saw him, ate with him, you know, looked upon him, studied him, so on and so forth. And that was the first part. Secondly, this was two weeks ago, he, he gave us a very powerful message from Jesus Christ about how God is completely holy. God is completely sinless. He's pure, remember John told us that that's what the message Jesus brought. He, and, and no unrighteousness, no unholiness, no spots, no blemish, no imperfections, no nothing. God is perfect and holy and loving and everything. And that's the message that Jesus Christ brought about God. And in, in lieu of that, or I should say, uh, you know, to go along with that, John also said he gave, he talked to Christians. And he said, hey, Christians, this is the standard since God is holy. This is the standard that God wants for you. You also, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, you also be holy for I'm holy, says God, in all your conduct. And as Peter says, for God is holy. So we know that because God's holy, he expects those that walk with him, those that are his, those he saves, to also walk in a holy lifestyle, unblemished by sin, not practicing of any sin. And those we studied, those last two points we studied just two weeks ago. On to our sermon and message for today, just catching up to speed. The title of our message today is The Test of Knowing Him. I'll get to that later. I'll talk about that, you know, as, as we go on here in a little bit. Again, the title, The Tests of Knowing Him. We're going to be, as I said, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read them now. You can read them with me or you can just listen along, whichever you'd like. But we begin. 1 John 2, verse 1. Through six, John starts off and he says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the, propi- uh, the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his words, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him, ought himself also to walk just as he, or I'll say Jesus, walked. Now, in case anyone that's reading John's epistle had any misunderstanding about his last point of the importance of that 1 Peter 1, you know, 15 and 16, the holy lifestyle God expects Christians to strive to live, be holy for I am holy, and all your conduct be holy, God says through Peter, through John the last time, in case anyone is confused about John's message, maybe John was really just saying to us in chapter 1 that we were just supposed to just have faith. Maybe that's what he meant by, you know, hey, watch yourself, be holy, hey, uh, you know, have, have faith, really, right? No. 
But just in case anybody's confused, John starts it off, he goes on to be as plain as he possibly can about the attitude a real Christian should have toward committing any sin in their life. He starts out, first part of verse 1, my little children. Now he was like, not like a a godly father, but he was like a, a, a physical, spiritual father to them because he had, you know, most likely helped them come to know the Lord. So he says, my little children. So this is talk, he's talking, he's written to Christians. He's speaking to the Christians in the, the, the room and the, whoever would, this epistle would have been addressed to, uh, a certain number of Christians in an area, all Christians everywhere. First John, the epistle isn't really written to any specific, uh, like Paul wrote his uh, epistles to, you know, the church in Corinth or the church in Colossae or the church in Ephesus. This is first, first John is just written to all Christians and all peoples telling people about Jesus. So he starts off, he says, specifically, my little children, speaking to the children of faith, God's children, the saved, those that are born again, he says, these things I write to you, the things that he just wrote, so that you, me, any Christian, again, anybody that's reading this letter that's a Christian, so that you may not sin. Wow. He's pretty direct there, isn't he? Plainly, he just said there, that the entire last section that he just wrote for us was the, the purpose for it was completely to tell Christians not to sin. Really, my little children, hey Christians, do not sin so that you may not sin. Do not sin. John couldn't have been any plainer about the attitude a saved person is supposed to have towards committing sin in their lives. Do not sin. John knew that God wasn't kidding when he said, when, when he knew God said, I'm holy. And he knew that because God said, I'm holy, he knew the message from God was, hey, if you're going to walk with God, you need to walk in a holy type of lifestyle. Don't practice sin, but live a holy lifestyle. Try to be perfect. Not that that perfection saves you, but that that is God's desire for those that he saves. He comes and lives within us. We talked about this two weeks ago, how God desires us now to live a sinless lifestyle. And that is, you know, if anybody was confused about what John was talking about in his first chapter, he, you know, he wrote some of it, most of it, for the fact of to tell you, don't sin. Stay away from sin. Now, not to beat us up, just like I said two weeks ago, just because real Christians' attitude toward committing sin is supposed to be strive not to sin at all ever again, as we just read, hey, make that your aim to never, ever, ever sin again. John still knows and unfortunately will still sin sometimes and will still struggle with committing sin sometimes. And because of this, he reminds us in the rest of verse 1, he says, goes on to say, and if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What's an advocate? Strong's Concordance tells us that an advocate is one who pleads another's cause before a judge, a pleader, a a counsel for defense. Think about that. You're you're guilty, and, and there's a lawyer, right? And he's going before a judge. God's like the judge. God is the judge. And he goes before you to kind of plead your case. Well, this is Jesus. 
Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is an advocate for people. He's our legal assistant. There's also a definition for advocate. An advocate. Another definition. One who pleads another's cause with one, an intercessor. Now, we know that there's only one mediator between God and man. That's Jesus Christ. Here again, the same one. The advocate, the righteous. There's many names for Jesus Christ. But he is our one that basically, when a, when a saved person or, or a real Christian sins, uh, again, remember, not willful sin or not the practice of any sinful lifestyle because we know that God doesn't like that. You know, we're, we're kind of trampling on the blood of Jesus Christ, right? So not willful sin, like John just told us. So when a saved person commits sin, uh, sin sometimes, you know, Jesus Christ basically literally. Now, according to what John just told us, I'm not coming up with this. This is an advocate. He stands before God and intercedes for us between God and us. So here's us, and we sin on the left. Here's Jesus Christ in the middle, and here's God on the right-hand side. We commit some sin, we blow it, we lust or something, or we you know, do something, we, we lie or whatever, we, we do it. Oh, I can't believe I did that. I'm sorry, God. Jesus stands there, and he goes, Oh, God, please, don't destroy them. Please, they ask for forgiveness. They're your child. I'm pleading with you. Please, God, don't destroy them for the sin that they just committed. He literally takes every single one of your sins and my sins, and he stands before God, and he pleads with God not to give us the judgment that is due for that sin. Bible says that the judgment for our sin is death, which not just death physical, that's death eternal. And sin brings separation between us and God. But, as John just wrote here, Jesus Christ is the great advocate who stands before us and he intercedes between God and us and pleads for our forgiveness so that God doesn't give us what is due for our sin when we sin. He handles each and every sin of every Christian personally before God to help God, to help. Pardon us from God's judgment against the sin that we commit. Wow. Praise God for Jesus. Every Christian, that's every person that's been saved and born again, when they hear that news, they should jump up and down for joy, get out of their seats, and do a dance. Because you know what? If it not be for what Jesus Christ did, does, every single time we sin, We'd all be doomed. We'd all be done. We'd all be done away with. None of us would stand before the mighty judgment seat of God, and we would all be doomed. But, so that's what Jesus Christ does. Why is he able to be an advocate for someone and their sin before God? Uh, What gives him the right? Look at verse 2. John writes this. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So Jesus is not only the advocate, but the reason he can't even be the advocate. The right that he even has to be that one who pleads our case before God is that he is the propitiation. What's a propitiation? Strong's again. And it's an appeasing propitiation. I hate when they use the name of the word in the, in the title, but I'm glad here they give you another definition to help us understand it. He's an atonement. He became our propitiation or our atonement. So what's an atonement? Atonement is something given to restore or bring restitution. For instance, you're in a car and you're driving along. 
and you smash into the back end of somebody else's car. And you, you get out and you, you just weren't thinking. You were thinking about bills at home. You were thinking about work. You, you the, the red light came on and the person stopped ahead of you and whack, you nailed them in the rear end. Man, you back up. Oh, my gosh, you get out of the car. I am so sorry. Here's an atonement. You break out your wallet and you say, listen, dude, I'm so sorry. I'm really, really, really upset about what I did. How can I make this right? Look, Let's go to the insurance company right now. I'm going to pay for your damage. I'm going to fix the wrong that I made. So then they go to insurance, figure out it's going to be $4,000. The guy, boom, comes out, pays the duck. He goes, hey, you know what, man? I'm so sorry. And they fix his car. They were atoning for the wrong that he did by fixing the man's car. That's an example of what an atonement is. How is Jesus Christ able to be an atonement? How is he able to be a propitiation for the sins of people all over the world? Bible tells us that he never sinned, that he gave his life on the cross, so he gave that life as an atonement, as something given to bring restitution. Well, what was the restitution that he brought for? He brought a restitution for our sins, the wrongs that we've done, like us hitting that back end of that car, and whacking into the back end of that car. We did the wrong. We, our sin, we did the wrong before God. So he gave his life for our sins, for unworthy sinners that were separated from God to satisfy the requirements of the law for sin. Because as I just said, the requirement of the law for sin is that when somebody sins, they die. They're separated before God. That's the judgment on our sin. But Christ gave his life in a, hey, I'm going to give this to you, God, so you don't take out your wrath on these sinners who are separated from you so that all who come to God through him might be covered by his blood and become worthy before God because of his blood and be forgiven and saved from their sin. Praise God. Thanks be to Jesus. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. That's even more good news. And not, as I said earlier, if not for Jesus Christ becoming our advocate, by and, and being able to do that, by becoming our advocate, We'd all be doomed to hell and there would be no hope for any of us. We would all be separated from God forever with no hope of any payment for those sins. Because the Bible says, unfortunately, that the sinner cannot provide his own atonement because he is a sinner. We have to, the one that had to apply to be the advocate, to pay for the wrong done, had to be one that did not do that wrong. And so because we did the sin, we've committed sin, We could not appease God's wrath by giving him anything because we sinned and we didn't have anything to give him. But Jesus Christ, who never sinned, had a life to give, a sacrifice of his life, of his blood, to give to God so that God wouldn't punish us for our wrong. Praise God for Jesus. That almost became the title of this message, except for the fact that more of the message is having to do with the fact of, you know, the test of knowing him rather than what he did for us. I could go on and on about this all day long, but praise God for Jesus that he gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins to become our advocate, to be able to stand before God and us, to take care of every single one of our sins personally 
before God. That is good news. Now, John changes topics, as I just said here in the next sentence. But before I get into that change of topic, I must bring up a very important point about what we just read. What is that point? Just really quickly going over it real quick again. John starts out again, 2-1. I already talked about this. My little children. Of course, we know that that's the Christians. John's not going to call pagan people his children. My little children, then they wouldn't be part of his family because they're pagans. So we know that John's written this letter primarily to Christians. And in verse 2, he says that Jesus Christ was propitiation for our sins. Now, again, the subject was the Christian. The saved person. So Jesus Christ became the atoning sacrifice for everybody saved, right? And he's, John says he was the propitiation for our sins. But then he also goes on to say, because that's the subject there with Christians, so the, the atoning sacrifice for Christians' sins. But he goes, and not only for ours, so not just for Christians, those his little children, but also for the whole world. And that would mean what? If it's not only for Christians, for the whole world would be what? All the people of the world, right? I mean, it's no plainer way to say it there. John differentiates between God's saved kids there and the rest of people on planet Earth, which would include what? Not only all the Christians, as John's writing to Christians, but he writes that to for, says that Jesus Christ is propitiation for Everybody in the whole world, which would include the unsaved people too. And he said that Jesus Christ was the propitiation or the pleasing atonement for the sins of Christians and non-Christians alike of the whole world. When you put it together, it makes sense. John 3.16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever... Again, so the whole world, we're talking about the people of the whole world, and that whosoever, that mean anybody in the whole world, whosoever shall believe in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Together you can clearly and easily see there that Jesus Christ's death was the atoning sacrifice or the pleasing sacrifice to God for the sins of every person on planet earth i mean you can't read those verses any other way when you break them down maybe if you're skating over them or you want to ignore them because you've been taught something else but when you break them down this is exactly what you see he was not only propitiation for our sins speaking to little children speaking to christians he was a propitiation for the whole world now This idea is so plain that these scriptures that I can't understand why anybody could believe these scriptures to say anything else or the Bible to say anything else. But of course, there are people who believe differently about this idea. The only reason I bring this up today is because there's a doctrine or a belief amongst a large group of so-called Christians in our world today that teach us that Jesus Christ's death only atoned for the sins of the so-called elect peoples of the world or the elect uh, that god chose before the foundation of the earth to save them before they ever even had an idea who god was or cared about who god was and god 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 only died for the certain group of what they call the elect while the rest of the people who they call the non-elect people whom god didn't choose or elect to save they have no choice at all but to go to hell because in fact according to them and their doctrine they believe that god created people just to go to hell that's what they believe and they somehow get it in the bible that they find where god created people for heaven 
And God created people just to go to hell. That's why he specifically made them to burn in hell forever. Or forever. For, so it comes from an evil man-made doctrine called Calvinism. And the idea of the death of Jesus Christ only atoning for the elect is explained in their acronym they call TULIP. I'm not going to go through all the little letters, but the L in TULIP stands for what they call limited atonement, which means Christ's death did not cover the sins of everybody in the world. It just covered the sins of the elect. Now, please understand. The Bible does not teach limited atonement. This is a man-made doctrine. Nowhere in the Bible will you find the words limited atonement. They don't exist. In fact, nowhere in the Bible will you even find the idea of limited atonement. And I believe, and I've not found it yet, the Bible never contradicts itself. And when we read over the two verses that I just read, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, and whosoever shall believe in him. And 1 John 2, 2, what did John say? For he himself is a propitiation for our sins, Christian sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. He puts the whole in there, even to emphasize that Jesus Christ didn't just die for the saved people. He died for the sins of the whole world. When you look at these two verses, they both reference Christ's death being for everyone, Christian or not, in all the world. And unless everyone in the world is elect, which they would not agree with, their doctrine is wrong. And really, it's from the pit of hell. Whenever we go against God's word and we teach something that doesn't align and according to the scriptures, that doctrine is a lie. That doctrine is false. But when we find scriptures and the Bible says, hey, something makes an emphatic statement. For instance, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world, like 1 John 2, 2. We must believe the Bible over the man-made idea of limited atonement of Calvinism. This idea, in case you're wondering, really festers pride and arrogance amongst those who call themselves the elect, because I've met them. And it makes them think that they're really, I believe, think that they're superior because, hey, I'm the elect. I'm the one. I'm the one God chose. Which, in essence, right then and there, it's just the opposite of the way Christ says a Christian should be. Jesus said that Christians should be humble and of a contrite heart, loving God, being the one that serves others, not the one that's supposed to be served. You know, those who serve are greater than those that are being served. It's the whole idea. And if we're the elect, or we're the chosen people, then, you know what, I got a right to feel better than everybody else, because you know what, hey, God chose me. He didn't choose you, (laughs) he chose me. But anyway... I just wanted to bring this up because I wanted to show you out of the Bible what the Bible says about limited atonement, that it does not speak of limited atonement. It's a man-made doctrine, and I wanted to show you the truth from the Scriptures. I don't understand how anybody could believe this evil teaching when we have these verses in the Bible, but they do. But anyway, I want to let you know, be confident, Christ's death was for everyone. He was the propitiation for Christian sins, and not only for Christians, but for the propitiation for the atoning sacrifice for the sins of everybody in the world. Again, praise God for Jesus. And it's not that way because I say it, ladies and gentlemen. It's that way because that's what we just read in the Bible.
Okay? So it's not what I believe, it's what God says. It's important. We have a, I believe and we have what God says. And God, what God says should always trump what you believe. And if what you believe is wrong, you find something as you're reading the Bible and you think something about God and you find that what you thought about God is wrong because God said so, then you need to change, not God. You. God, I'm changing all the time. As I read scripture, I find things that I'm wrong at. I got to change my opinion, what I thought about God, and I got to conform to what he said, not to what I believe, because he's the master, I'm the student. And anytime the master says something, the student needs to listen if you're a true student. Anyway, enough on that. I won't rant anymore. I want to get on to John's subject change, uh, verse 3. I'm going to just read it over real quick. John says, verse 3, in the subject change. Now, by this we know, we know him if we keep his commandments. So kind of he just changes gears there. He goes on from the type of sinful lifestyle that we're not supposed to live, being holy and you know blameless before God, be holy in all your conduct, to he changes the subject here. By this we know, now we could have said, Hey, by this sinlessness, we know that we're not his, but that's not what he's saying. We're going to get to that in a little bit because he goes on to say, he gives a subject. By this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The title of this section in my New King James Version is The Test of Knowing Him. Well, that's why I titled the sermon that this week because this complete section is really a complete test of whether or not you or me or anybody really knows Jesus Christ. And John starts us off and he says, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So by we're his if we're doing what he says. Okay. Uh, Pretty simple. Those who do the things that Jesus Christ say to do in his teachings have a true saved relationship with him. What kind of things did Jesus say to do? Well, from the very foundation, he said, those who desire to follow after me must, must deny themselves, pick up their crosses, and follow me. This is the very basic foundation of Jesus Christ's teachings. The actual point in time where we come to a relationship with God. We decide to surrender our lives. We decide to you know, follow him. We decide to make our lives patterned after his. I, I, I've lived my life. I screw it up. That was me 16 years ago, 17 years ago. Now I said after that point, I don't want to live that way no more. I need a new path. I need a new direction. It's like you're on the highway and you say, oh, I, need to go, I need to go south. No, I've been heading north all this time and I need to go south. So And you go south. In this case, it'd be you were going south toward hell. Now you want to go north toward heaven. But anyway, so it's that point in time on the foundation. Those who desire to follow after me must deny themselves, pick up their crosses, and follow after me. This is one of the very first things Jesus taught about foundation, how to come to know him. To surrender to him. This is the very foundation. And and this is where uh, we see that if we don't keep this, or we must keep this in order to be his. He also taught things like love God with all your heart. What does that mean? Have a relationship with God. Worship God. Obey God. Obey the things that God taught in his word in the Old Testament. Don't think, oh, you're a, you're a, 
you're all about the law, Pastor Ed. No, 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 I'm not all about the law. But Jesus said that the law has a place in a Christian's life. The law that God gave is an absolute awesome way to live your life as a good moral standard for you to live your life. Way above, especially if you live in America with our whole push on the transgender bathroom thing, it's a whole better, way better way to live your life than all the world's rules, right? The world's rules are by corrupted men. God gives perfect laws, which those who really love him can live by him and live a pure and holy life, right? Love God with all your heart. He taught things like love your neighbor as yourself. And this wouldn't just be in word. This would be in action. Jesus said he commanded, love your neighbor as yourself. And in fact, he said, loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. It hang, all the, these two hang all the law and all the prophets. So we know if we do these, even these two things, we are going to fulfill all the whole law of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all the things that God taught in his word. Um, uh, also, Jesus taught things like share the gospel with others. You know, be humble, be submissive, be contrite. These are just some basic things that Jesus taught in his word. And John just said there in 2-1, or in 2-3, excuse me, by this we know that we know him if we're doing the things that he taught in his word. But of course, Jesus just didn't teach the do commandments, right? He didn't just say, hey, do this, love God and love the neighbor and preach to others. He, he said, don't do things too, didn't he? He said, stay away from sin. Hey, if you're his, you should be. We just talked about this two weeks ago and today, staying away from sin. John says that if we really know him, we'll abstain from the practice of a sinful lifestyle. Paul tells us what some of these things are, just some of them. There's, there's more we know. He says things like, we're supposed to abstain from adultery. We're supposed to abstain from fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, which is profane actions or profane words. We're supposed to uh, abstain from idolatry and sorcery and hating people and being contentious and always arguing with others, being jealous and, and having outbursts of wrath and being, you know, having selfish ambition, which all about me and I, I got to do what I got to do, you know, and it's all about what I need and what I want. Dissensions, heresies, um, envy, murders, drunkenness, not getting drunk, revelries and the like. And now these are just some. So Paul told us what some of those things were that Jesus and God said, hey, don't do these things. So Matthew 7, 23, even Jesus said to some people that thought they were his, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So we know that Jesus not only gave things to do, love God, love neighbor, follow me, surrender to me, you know, uh, preach to others, be humble before God. But hey, also... Hey, stay away from sin, Christian. Stay away from sin, because if you don't, 723, Matthew 723, I never knew you, he says, because they practice lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. So Jesus had the do's and the don'ts. And I could go on and on. I could go, I could probably teach on this for hours, but just John sums it up perfect in verse 6. So we'll jump ahead to verse 6, and then we'll go back to 4 and 5, and we'll finish our sermons. He says in 6, he says... He who says he abides in him, meaning he who says, the person who says, I belong to God. I am the servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my Lord. He says, ought himself also to walk as Jesus walked. That means that if you're his, you should be walking like Jesus lived. Doing the things that Jesus said to do and doing the things that Jesus did himself. 
preaching to others, loving others, being a servant to all, loving God. Just as you saw Jesus live in the Word, this is how you, if you're His, John says here, the test of knowing Him, the first one, now by this we know we know Him, if we keep the things that He says in verse 6, hey, not only keeping the things He says, but also pattern your life after Him. The definition of the word Christian fits the bill here. The definition of the word Christian is a follower of Christ and his teachings. And of course, you can't follow him if you can't if you don't know how he lived. So a Christian is one who patterns their life, one who lives, says if they say there is, they ought to walk, live their lives just like he lived. And John just told us that those who follow Christ and his teachings truly have a saved relationship with him. John records Jesus Christ saying the same thing in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 21. He says this, He who has my commandments, now these come. this is coming right from the mouth of Jesus here, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. So you see, the one that loves him is the one that's doing what he says. That's very important. And you know that I'm big on opposites, going on to verse 4. I see opposites in life. If you really, really love some things, then you're really, really going to hate other things. And you can't really, really hate, for instance, I can't stand seafood. I can't really, really hate seafood and love seafood too. So if I, lo- if I hate seafood, I'm going to love something else. Well, John believes in opposites too. John heard Jesus teach opposites. Look at verse 4 because we see opposites in everything in life. Uh, John says, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Jesus said the same thing again in John 14, 24, kind of in the same regards of knowing him. Jesus said, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And John just said here in verse four, the person who says they have a saved relationship with Jesus Christ but they don't do the things that he said and that he taught, so which is the opposite of a follower of Christ. If a follower of Christ is doing the things that Jesus said, the opposite of a follower of Christ is not doing the things that he said. John just said that that same person is a liar, which means that they are deceived and they don't have a safe relationship with Christ as they believe that they do. And why are they a liar? Why are they deceived? Because John doesn't use the word deceived, but I did. Well, think about it. If somebody believes something, if I believe myself to be a policeman, but I'm not really a policeman, but I really believe myself to be a policeman, am I really a police officer? Absolutely not. Who's deceived? Are the police officers deceived that are really police officers? Absolutely not. But if someone thinks themselves to be a police officer, and yet they didn't go through the training, they don't go on the squad car or get on the bike, and they don't go police the streets, and they don't go write tickets, and they don't what? do the things that police officers do, but they still think that they're a police officer, then they're what we would call in our modern terminology as deceived. They think that there's something, I thought that I'm a police officer, but I don't do the things that they do, so I'm not a police officer. Well, John's saying the same thing. Those who say, I'm saved. Those who say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, but then in their lifestyle, their lives do not emulate a follower of Christ. They don't emulate the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus taught. That one, John says there, is a liar, and they do not do, so they're a liar. 
uh, which they're deceived. Uh, this is a tremendous problem in America in 2016. I'm not sure this is where I live. I'm not sure if it's that way all over the world because I only live to America and I think I've only ever been to uh, maybe Canada. I don't think I've even been to Mexico. But I know in America we have a tremendous problem with those who say that they belong to Jesus Christ and yet they're, they just their lifestyle, they live like sin, they, they, they don't do the things Jesus said. In fact, they live like the devil and, and they, they're fornication. I talked about this a couple weeks ago, and I'm not going to rant on it again, but just know this is a terrible problem in America, ladies and gentlemen. People claim to be a Christian all the time here. In fact, our country, 85 or so percent of Americans believe themselves to be Christians, yet we have a a tremendous alcohol rate. We have a tremendous porn rate. We have a tremendous child pornography rate. We have a tremendous drug rate. And yet most people say they're Christians. Well, you can't have these tremendously high rates of evil if the majority of the population is truly following Jesus Christ. It's just They're deceived and they say that they're something, but they're not because they don't follow the teachings of Jesus. Moving forward, look what John says next. Verse 5, he says, But whoever keeps his, or Jesus Christ's word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And he goes on to say, By this we know that we are in him. So he finally says it. Again, John's repeating himself. I'm working at not repeating myself. John's repeating himself. He said it, he opened up with it, and he's closing with it. Whoever keeps and does the things that Jesus says belongs to Jesus. They belong to them. And by that, by your doing those things, you know, hey, I'm in him. Hey, my life patterns the life of Jesus Christ. I'm doing the things that Jesus said to do. Hey, I'm his. So John says, God's love and so salvation is truly in or on him or her who keeps or obeys the teachings of Christ. And and by this, you could say this evidence Meaning, hey, I'm saved. There's evidence of my salvation in my life. There's a following of Jesus Christ in my life. It's called an evidence. It's something that happens. We know that we have confidence and that we're really His and that we're really saved. It doesn't mean that we're not going to sin sometimes. Of course, you know, God doesn't absolutely expect us to live a perfect life because we know He knows that we're sinners, but we shouldn't be making a practice of it. And we know that we're always not going to obey every single thing that God told us to do 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But this is the goal and the, the, the aim of every saved person should be the following and pattering their pattern patterning their lives after Jesus Christ. And by this, John says, you know, hey, you'll have the confidence when you do this, that you belong to him. Now, I think at this point, that was our last verse, but I want to bring up something that's very appropriate to talk about what John is not saying here. And this is, uh, this is the, the key of saved versus not saved, worthless religion over true relationship. John is not saying that people can get saved or attain a saved relationship with Jesus Christ or God by keeping or obeying his do and don't teachings. John is not saying that people are saved by keeping his commandments. He's saying that if we are keeping and obeying the teachings of Jesus Christ, This is the evidence that we are in him and that we are his. Huge difference. It may not seem so, but it's the same, but it is not the same, and I want to explain. Think about this. 
And I've had this discussion with a Catholic relative of mine. I've had this discussion on the streets. If you or me or John or James or Larry or Susie or Joni could earn their salvation by doing all the things which God said to do and never sinning, which I know that's kind of impossible, but if you could, if you could attain your salvation by doing those things, why did Jesus Christ ever have to go to the cross? See, because if I could earn my way to heaven by my good works and my doing all the things that God taught me to do, if I could earn my salvation, why did Jesus Christ have to give his life on the cross to pay for our sins? You see, if you don't, I should say, if you're working for your salvation, then you've just made Jesus Christ's death on the cross nothing. So we need him, and we're always going to be sinners. The attitude of our hearts as Christians should be to serve him and love him and not sin, but we're still going to, but we can never, ever work for our salvation. Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Think of those words, grace, faith, that's, that's how you're saved, and not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works. Paul makes it very clear there that it's by God's grace through our faith and not, not of works, at least anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. See, so most of all of the false so-called Christian denominations in America and across the world teach salvation to you like this. Well, we have God's grace, and hey, he's, he's got the grace. And you see, what we need to do to get that grace is we got to work really hard to earn that grace. So it's grace plus works equals what? Our salvation. That's what the most religions, most of the false religions in the world, in fact, and especially the false fallen away Christian denominations, that's what they teach. Grace, God's grace, plus your good works, your keeping of God's laws, your doing what God said, everything, I can't break one of them, I can't break one of them, equals your salvation. And this is not what Paul just taught us. Paul just taught us in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, because that teaching makes Christ on the cross nothing, and our work to be saved everything, which is wrong, 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 wrong. Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 taught us this, that true salvation, the true salvation equation is God's grace, Plus, our faith, which is not a work, equals salvation. That's how we're saved. And then where do works come in? The works come in that after we're saved, good, good Christian works and the keeping of the commandments of Christ should come from a true saved relationship with Christ, which is all that John is saying here. Please don't get these two teachings mixed up as one leads to eternal life with God forever and while the other leads to eternal torments in hell because if we work for our salvation, then Christ's sacrifice means nothing to us. If Christ's sacrifice means everything to us, then we're going to have faith in God's grace, that free gift that God gave, and then we're going to get saved because we're going to put all our hope and all our trust and all of our faith and complete everything in Him. And then out of that, just like in a marriage, you get married first, and then a lot of love things happen after you get married. Same thing idea is in a salvation relationship with God. So in light of what John wrote here, I must ask everyone listening a huge, 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 humongous question. That question is, 
do you know him and do the actions of your life prove it? As John said in his epistle, and as Paul wrote to us in Ephesians, do the works of your life match up with your verbation of your, or your words that say, I know him? Do you live a life according to what he said that you should be doing, or don't you? A really good way to think about this would be the chorus of a really neat Christian song by an awesome Christian band that I love. Uh, and the name of the song is called Life Song. And the song of the chorus goes like this. Let my life song sing to you. Or as John puts it, verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walked. Again, not from a heart of, I need to do these things so that I can be saved. But from a heart condition of, Because I love God, my desire is to please Him. I love Him. He's my master. I want to please Him. Wow, what can I do to please Him? Not, oh, I need to do these things to be saved. Does your life's song, I'll break the words up there, the life that you live in actions and words, sing out a lifestyle of Jesus Christ of love, honor, praise, obedience to his teachings out of that love and relationship for him and a desire to please him, or doesn't it? It's really only two two ways. Either your life song really sings to him and it brings him glory and it brings him love and relationship and obedience, or it doesn't. You see, many people, as I said already, especially in America, they know of Jesus Christ. And by knowing of, I mean they know of him like I know of the sun. I know the sun. I know of the sun. I know of the moon. I know of my house. I know of my jobs. I know of my cars. I know of all these things. But knowing of something is not knowing like you know someone intimately. I don't know the sun intimately. I don't know the moon intimately. I have a general knowledge of brain knowledge of these things. Many think that by obeying and doing his do's and his don'ts, they're saved. So they're trying to be saved by keeping their religious works. Like my my relatives, they, they say these these useless prayers to people, and, and but they don't really talk to God, and, and their lives really don't pattern Christ's life, but they do all these religious things, and they go to church all the time, and they take all these things, and they do all these sacraments, and they do, but those are just religion. Those are trying to work because they don't have an assurance of their salvation, but so they're trying to really work hard so that God will be pleased with them so that they can be saved. But we know, like I said, that Salvation is by grace through faith, and which is not any work at all. That's, that's a free gift of God, and we, we have to put our faith in Him, not by our works. But very few that I've met, ladies and gentlemen, that I've met know Him in a personal relationship way. And because of their personal relationship with Him, their life represents His way of life. So few I have met have a genuine love for God and Christ in true relationship where out of that relationship comes obedience to his teachings and and good godly works and the keeping of his do's and his don'ts. 
that whole law of God thing. Again, like I said earlier in the sermon, we don't, I don't keep Leviticus or Deuteronomy and Numbers, all the good things that God said to do there, because I hope that by the keeping of those things that God will save me. By golly, after I got saved, well, I want it. Hey, I don't want to live like the world says anymore. I don't want to live like I live anymore. Hey, God, give me a way to live. And hey, God says, hey, go to my word. David says, oh, your word is like a lamp unto my feet, a light into my path. Your word is the way that we ought to live. And John says, those that are really living for him, those that really love him, those that are really saved, those evidences of they're going to obey his word, they're going to do the things that he said are going to come out of their lives. So I must ask again, do you really know him? And does your life song really sing out a lifestyle that is similar to his when he walked the face of the planet or not? Paul asked the same question. I'm asking you to do something today. Paul asked the same question to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. He said, test yourselves. That's what he told them, and that's what I'm asking each one of you to do today. You must test yourself. If you really are concerned with knowing Jesus Christ, being saved, going to heaven, John just gave you the measure by which you can really know that you're really his. Do you strive to live a sinless lifestyle? Do you strive to obey his teachings? And just overall, do you strive to live the same lifestyle as he did out of pure love and relationship with him, not so you can get saved, or don't you? Remember, John just told us, verse 4, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth's not in him. So if you're not striving to live like him, and you're, and you're, and you're not keeping his words and your teachings, then you're not his and you won't be saved. Please examine yourself today to see if you really know Jesus Christ. If you believe you know him, then your lifestyle should represent that of Jesus Christ and the one that he lived when he was in his fleshly body. And it should not be out of your striving to be saved, but it should be out of pure relationship and love and desire to be obedient. If after all that, in closing, You can sit here and say, I see Pastor Ed. I think I'm one of those that are deceived. I I think I don't know him. My life doesn't pattern the life of Christ. I mean, I've been, I mean, I thought I was born a Christian. I'm going to church my whole life. You know what? I I really don't look like Jesus. My life doesn't represent his. You know, I, I just don't. I call myself a Christian, but but I'm not really, then please listen. If that's you, and that's what you're saying to yourself right now, please listen to the words of Jesus in John 12, 25, and I want you to act on them. Jesus said, he who loves his life, he's talking about your earthly life now, will lose it, meaning their eternal life. That means if you're in charge of your earthly life now, You're the one that's ruling your life. You're the one that's in control of your earthly life now. Jesus said you'll lose your eternal life. But he says, and he who hates his life, meaning your earthly life, meaning I don't want this life anymore in this world, will keep it for eternal life. He's saying, once you realize, hey, you know what? I don't want this life anymore. I'm on my way to hell. I don't want this life. I'm going to despise this life. But you know what? I need Jesus then you need to hate your life and turn to Christ and repent. 
And the Bible uses the term like repentance unto life. That means making a, doing a complete 180. In your heart of hearts, I don't want to live this way anymore. God, save me. I want you to save me. I don't I want to be this different person. I want my life song to sing to you, God. I'm tired of living the way I'm living. Jesus, I need you. Save me, please. And that's simply turning to him, surrendering to him with all your heart, as a man and woman do when they're getting married. When a man or woman decide to get married, they have to turn away from their single lifestyles. They have to turn away from being self-consumed. All about me. Right? Conceited. That's, that's what that's called. Because when I'm alone and I'm living on my own and I'm my own man, then I live honey way I want. It's all about me. But when I get married, I got to turn away from that type of lifestyle and I come into communion or a union with my wife where I give her my life now and I live my life for her and I do things that make her happy because I love her. Well, God loves you so much. And he proved his love to you by shedding his blood on the cross. He did everything to bring you salvation. Everything he did to bring you salvation. He laid down his life. He taught all these awesome teachings. He proved his love for you. What he wants from you now in order to be his, in order to be saved, is he wants you to turn to him and he wants you to love him back. He wants you to decide right now today to have a true relationship with him. One where you're not only about yourself. It's not about how I want to live. God, how did you say to live? I want to follow you now. I'm done with this life. I'm on the wrong path and, and I need you. And it's a, Repentance is a changing of heart changing of mind. I need Jesus. So my question is, if that's you, will you truly turn to him today and truly repent and decide to love him back? Or won't you? Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your word. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your love. Thank you so much, Lord, that you even give a test of knowing you here, Lord. You could just, hey, you've seen the people that are out there that think that they're yours, but they're really not. And you said, hey, you know, they, they can go look for themselves. That's fine. You know, if, if they care, you know what. But Lord, you, you gave a test of knowing you. Lord, will you want us to know if we're really yours or not. You don't want there to be any deceived people, Lord. You want to save everybody, Lord. Thank you, God, for your love. You're constantly showing me how much you love people. Even though, Lord, people are so rebellious and so, Lord, they just fight against you. I just pray, Lord God, the people that are out there right now that are listening to this message that are deceived or they're not yours or they've never been yours, Lord, I pray that they'd see your love today and see that they're wrong, Lord, and I pray that they would repent and that you would help them to repent, Lord. You would bring them to repentance that leads to life and that they would be saved, and they would actually be yours, Lord. Not just people that think that they're yours, but they're deceived. I ask all these things, and I pray all these things, Lord. We do, as a church, and all those that are your children even should be praying that prayer for people around the world, Lord, every day. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Praise God, everyone. It's Pastor Ed here.
Thank you so much for listening to the message. It's my prayer that you were encouraged and challenged with what you heard today to be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. Because your life will soon be passed and only what you've done for Jesus Christ will last. If you live in the Dallas, Texas area, we want to invite you to come to our little house church here in McKinney, Texas. Sunday mornings, our service is at 1015 and the directions can be found on our website. Also, if you have any prayer requests or questions or maybe you believe God has called you to support this church financially, please go to gospelsavingchurch.com and click on the appropriate links. I would love to hear from you personally. God loves you very much. Please love Him back by the way you live your life. God bless you and have a wonderful day.